Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have with me many a glorious fellow author here today. Um, we have back on the podcast Matt Dawson. We also have Erwin Blackthorne and Torin Fletcher back again. Thank you guys so much for joining me for this conversation, which I think I will title an audience divided. Um, and we'll get into the, the topic here soon. But before we begin, uh, we must do a round of shilling. That's right. Uh, we have our coppers out and you will throw in your copper coins. First over at Wild Isle lit.com where i've got my fiction my editing service the wild isle style guide so if you're an author looking for a skilled line editor and let's say aficionado in thematic depth uh through union psychology you can come and hire me there um and since we have somebody guess i'm not going to show the rest of the stuff go over there wild lit.com listen to my book it's on audio once book broken let's go to you first matt um matt where tell people about yourself in case they don't know you and uh where they could find your stuff yeah, Matt Dawson. Um, I write kind of an eclectic blend of sci-fi and fantasy in a, various, a number of various settings. Uh, you can catch me on Royal Road or Scribble Hub as Machine Hearts. Thank you, Matt. Erwin, you're up next. Tell people about yourself. Hello, I'm Erwin Blackthorne. I usually write into the philosophy and aesthetics of writing. And you can find me on Reddit at rtdlh where I'll be writing about, um, well, recently I've been writing about desktop nightmares, where I compare writing and art into culinary arts and show the similarities. Thank you, Oren. Torin, tell people about yourself. Where can they find you? Uh, what's up? Uh, I'm Torin Fletcher. Uh, you can also know me as uh, Grippa, as many here do. Um, I do have a Minds profile, though. Uh, there's not much content or activity there currently. Um, hopefully that will change in the future. Um, I'm most, I guess you could say, an artist and aspiring author. Uh, I guess I, I write really kind of a blend of a thriller, supernatural, horror, um, stuff like that. That's kind of the usual playground I like. Um, that's pretty much the essence of it, really. Thank you guys for your introductions. Check them all out. I'll have links to everyone's stuff down in the description. Now for the topic of today, um, I'm framing this as a kind of conversation of iron and gold or iron perhaps versus gold. This is in reference to the iron age of writing that we, um, insofar as I, I'm aware of, we're apparently in. I kind of came into this blind and uh, am still kind of relatively blind bumbling about hence why i have invited you all here today um and the reason why is because i have uh, i really like the proliferation of a bunch of independent authors who are pushing back against the let's say decadence of traditional publishing in its uh, fall to woke ideology i definitely um, am against the hyper acclimatization i doesn't even a word that you see in let's say fi literary fiction particularly where it's all pretension, pretense, authors pretending to be skilled when they are not writing stories that no one wants to read. However, uh, I am also worried. I'm worried that we are perhaps seeding a lot of uh, elements of quality prose to those very people who you know we would otherwise be happy to see go by the wayside. 
And I don't know if I'm mistaken about my perceptions or not. And so I think for the sake of the audience, we should first address the question about uh, what is the Iron Age of writing? Uh, what is it? What are its focuses? So that we are actually all talking about the same thing, because I kind of get different answers everywhere I go. Um, and I think the person I will throw this to first um, is Matt. Why don't you go first, Matt? When I say Iron Age of writing, what does that mean to you? Sure. Uh, so it's it's kind of an interesting concept where we, we assign kind of the base medals and the noble medals to um, kind of an age. I really think that in specific, Iron Age is kind of a foundational um, series. But it's interesting because if we go back to classical, like, Greek philosophers, an Iron Age was kind of an insult, right? It was an inferior time before the Greeks came along. So uh, personally, I'm kind of torn between uh, should we call ourselves in an Iron Age or are we in a precursor to a Gilded Age? Um, and if I think about specifically Iron Age, I kind of think like we're re we're kind of rebuilding, right? We've we've gone through an apocalyptic event, and we have to start from scratch. So, Matt, would you say that the idea of Iron Age is that because we've just suffered the fallout of all the institutions in regard to fiction, that we've been plunged here, but that this is a transitionary period, sort of like the desert between like us and the promised land, something like that? We could look at it like that. Um, there is there is the possibility, though, that we might be, uh, how to put it, we might be shooting too low as a, let, let's just say as a collective uh, group of artists, right? Um, there is a palpable decline in quality as far as the things that we've consumed over, let's just say, the past 10 to 15 years, and it could be longer, but I'll just use that for discussion's sake. But really... I think it's it's a there's a component of uh, demoralization in there. Like, oh, we have to go back to the Iron Age. That's where we are. Everything around us is just, you know, subpar, and so we have to start from there. Um, and there's the other component of it where, as a culture, at least American culture, um, we've kind of take taken the stance of apprenticeship and thrown it out the window. Uh, and you could kind of see this throughout a lot of knowledge based, um, a lot of knowledge based occupations. Uh, you know, I'm a software developer by trade. So, um, if I, if I haven't heard my weekly imposter syndrome, uh, reference, I start to think the world's kind of falling apart. Uh, and really imposter syndrome is the fact that there is no one around you that knows more than you that can give you feedback. Uh, and that's not to say you're the smartest person in the room. It's just that if you have 10 people and all of them are roughly in the same skill set, have the you know the roughly same skill level, and they're all kind of working, not really in a silo, but they're, like, they're kind of giving each other feedback, but they don't really have any sort of authority over each other. Um, it's going, like, you have a group of peers judging each other, but there's no one master in the room that says, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. 
Um, so to wrap this all together, we might be relegating ourselves to an Iron Age because there are no masters by which to say we're in an Iron Age, we're in a uh, a Golden Age, we're in what kind of age have uh, have you? We're in a Bronze Age, right? Yeah, so that makes sense. So what I'm hearing from you there is the gatekeepers have fallen and we don't have any new real new gatekeepers now. It's like the the mob and everyone vying for attention, but not really knowing whether they deserve it because there's no means to, to mediate. And then therefore you get all different kinds of aims, many of which are going to perhaps aim down because that's what's common, right? It's only that which is exceptional, which excels. Um Erwin, what do you think about all this? What is Iron Age when you hear that? You know, what's your experience with it? And, you know, feel free to also jump on anything that uh, Matt just pointed out there. Well, I have a lot to say, but I can't say it all. (laughs) So uh, to start off, I want to talk about where the Iron Age begins and then where it can end. Because when you look at iron, it is the metal in, in accordance to alchemy. It's the metal that's in relation to Mars and Mars is the god of war almost everything in the iron age as content is about physical struggles it's there's people directing themselves towards pulp the people are trying to do some kind of cyberpunk or steampunk uh what's the other one um the one that comes before steampunk i clock punk stuff like that uh dark fantasy people trying to take over when there's some kind of terrible ruler. A lot of it is based around punk aesthetics, but most of the people who are writing in it are actually just hippies. The whole entire thing has become postmodernist, and it pretends to be modernist, which then turns into what's called metamodernist. And this is also why a lot of these people, they try to defend things like multiverses and... Uh, this weird kind of transition between the truth and the subjective to try to say that their own subjectivity is the truth, but then they try to push it on to everybody else. Mm, and when okay, we look so, at the way it's oh, working ahead. right now, okay, <laughs> when we look at the way it's working right now, it's more of a stone age because these people don't have any tools or any references, not much of a history there's nothing established yet. And they keep on saying, we don't have anything established. We don't have anything to really work off of. We're just doing our own thing independently. And then they praise themselves that they're independent. Well, sure, but so is a tribe in the middle of nowhere. So is an individual stranded on an island. You know, uh, what's that movie? Castaway, the guy talking to his, his volleyball, <laughs> Wilson, right? So a lot of these people are isolated. And this isolation causes insanity. I think there's a lot of insanity in this particular uh, uh, movement. And it's caused by people not having what Matt was talking about, the masters or even leaders, to guide them into a particular area. And that's why when we look at an Iron Age, you have to look at something like a castle that's firmly established. But I don't think they can do this if they don't accept that they need to create the castle in the first place. Right now they have a sand castle. Okay, that's an interesting bit there. Like the idea that this is a stone age, a stone age because it it does not have the um, sophi- it doesn't even have the sophistication for a 
you know, the, the tools of war, right? Because like a castle, you mentioned mm-hmm. that's, no establishment, that, no no smithery, no no uh, rhyme or reason. It's all random. And you related that to subjectivity. What that brought my mind to was um, like the the Tower of Babel, right? So like the tower just mm-hmm. fell. And everyone is scattered to the winds. They're all speaking their own languages and they can't understand one another because they're not, um, let's say, speaking the tongue of God, which as a metaphor would be something like the objective truth. So, um, exactly. Mm-hmm. And this is the apocalypse that Matt was talking about. Uh, so after the Tower of Babel fell, because some people try to go towards God, these are the, uh, the what's it called, um, the corporations. And these people are trying to go away from the corporations. Now they're in the desert. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> mm. that, that does make sense. Now, for those listening out there, uh, because they're, they're very likely to have gotten lost in what we just talked about and now think we're like nut jobs. Um, what we, we're saying they trapped in their own subjectivity. Essentially, that's something like um, wish fulfillment, right? So it's not, you know, the story doesn't have a theme. Or typically won't have a theme that harkens to something that is real that someone could actually use. It is the eternal child play imagination of things going the way that one wants because one wants them that way. Um, not to say that everybody's doing this, but that because the gatekeepers are gone, the institutions are gone, the, the Tower of Babel fell. Tower of Babel, when when Erwin was talking about. Um, the institutions fall. What he's saying there is like they tried to posit themselves as gods. That's what the Tower of Babel story is. We're going to make ourselves as glorious as God. God being, uh, you could believe in God literally if, if that's that's your predisposition. I perfectly respect that. But if not, um, and you're more of a secular type like I happen to be, uh, I view that as a metaphor for the fundamental objective reality, right? And so when people try to put themselves in place of that, inevitably it doesn't hold up because that's like, putting yourself against reality like you know by definition it, it falls after um did i so did that all sound correct in terms of me summarizing uh what you were just talking about there erwin oh yeah and then um another thing i want to add into it where um iron is very far from gold when you look at how the metals function the most the most um it's not like an impurification it's like it's almost like it's uh, like a uselessness, like a waste. And iron is very close to things like mercury and lead. And lead is poisonous, so is mercury. That poison in alchemy is considered something closer to what is the prima materia of mercury, which is madness, uh, pure emotion, the, the utter chaos of the world. And gold is closer to order, which is why it's supposed to be this uh, very conductive electrical kind of metal same like copper and so when we look at gold we're looking at order when we look at iron we're looking at something a little bit closer to chaos but in that in-between area that's called salt and so it's closer to body and that's why a lot of these stories that come from iron age they don't really focus on the spiritual aspect or even the mental aspect it's all actions and all physical body motions and that's where they lose a lot of readers because they're not trying to attach to the reader's mind. They're trying to attach to the reader's body. Now, that makes sense from uh, a set of alchemical principles, right? Um, again, for those who don't know, the reason why 
to me, I was thinking Nietzschean terms from the birth of tragedy. So that'd be the Apolline and Dionysiac or Dionysian, depending on how you, which translation you read. Um, but the idea is that, you know, gold is the, is that which is bright, which is shining, which does not lose its luster, which does not uh, tarnish. So it is, uh, in that sense, or that, you know, lots of orderly, whereas something like iron does rust, it does decay, moves us into the, the indul you know, self-indulgent chaos, which is the Dionysian. Um, so, yeah, just in case uh, any of the, the readers didn't understand why that might be the case. Um, and also moving towards mercury is transformative, right? Because, uh, you know, mercury is quicksilver, it's liquid at room temperature it, it takes different shapes yet is still a metal um it drives one to madness which is what one experiences when one is going through a self transformation and maybe that harkens what matt was saying right about this being kind of like we're in a state where we're in the chaos and we need to transform into something uh and maybe we're having a hard time doing it just like i don't know if i go biblical again uh for the resident atheist here uh but but the um you know, the Jews lost in the desert, suddenly worshiping uh, Baal, I believe it was, uh, like worshiping the bull when Moses comes down, right? Like losing themselves and getting cast astray. But I've gone far and away. Um, I want to jump over to Torin. So you've got, you had a lot to listen to, a lot, a uh, long time to wait um, to reframe the question. So you've got, you know, what is Iron Age to you? Like, what is it that you see is Iron Age out in the world? And feel free to add on or respond to anything you've heard thus far. Uh, I would say that generally, um, the, uh, previous two answers, yeah, they, I'm pretty much in line with them. Um, from what I've seen, it's kind of like, I'd almost say that it's as much of a, it seems like a movement as it is almost kind of a type of like literary style, I suppose you could call it. Um, I don't know, I guess like regarding just, you know, the question of iron itself, um, I would pretty much agree I know that we, you know, we I, we touched on this a lot uh, during our last conversation, but um, I bring up the points again where a lot of it is, you know, wish fulfillment, especially with these uh, genres that you see a lot, either in the Iron Age or kind of loosely associated with it, um, pertaining to things like isekai and um, uh, why is the name escaping me? Um, lit RPG. There we go. You know, there is a lot of uh, just, yeah, a lot of wish fulfillment and really not a whole lot of depth uh, just in a lot of these works that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree. I'm also, I mentioned when I was shilling that I, I do freelance editing um, and even ghostwriting. If you want to book ghostwriting, get in contact with me. I need a separate page on my website. But um, not to start shilling, I have seen a lot of, Usually they pair together the isekai lit RPG. Um, this kind of harkens, not harkens, it relates to the waves of nostalgia. You know how everything just keeps getting re-released. Part of that is a lack of creativity all over media. Um, but that might even be what we're talking about here, right? We are in the desert. Now, Torin, I'll start with you with this reframing of the question. Um, given that we're in the desert, and it, it seems to me that perhaps there are multiple camps in terms of our attitude about being in the desert. What do I mean by that question? It's not even a question. Uh, <laughs> what, what do I mean to ask? I mean to ask, do you see uh, fracture factions is the right word factions amongst 
the let's say Iron Age writers uh, in terms of their uh, concerns for what should be written, um, about their concerns for quality, uh, the the genres they prefer, anything like that. Like, are there factions, the the or yeah, particular factions along Iron Age that you witnessed? Oh, absolutely. I would say, um, you know, there's probably a lot more than what I've personally seen, but I could at least tell you that there's probably at least three different, I suppose, camps that I've kind of consistently noticed. There's, you know, first there's the ones that actually want to go back to, you know, the uh, the pulps, you know, classic stuff, you know, um, golden age of sci-fi, golden age of, you know, sword and sorcery, stuff like that. Then um, I would say the other one is uh, what I mentioned previously, just the isekai lit RPG types. And I'd almost say that there's kind of a third one that sometimes they kind of overlap with the second cap. But sometimes I've kind of observed that they seem to be on the wrong where I'm trying to think of. I'd say that their stuff is very uh, it's not always as um, wish fulfillment, you know, as ego centered. But uh, one thing I have noticed is it's very influenced by media that is not literature. You know, I imagine a lot of these people are admittedly, um, you know, I guess I suppose it's to be expected, but they're people that didn't really grow up reading. You know, there's a lot of anime influence in these works. There's a lot of video game influence, which I wouldn't say is necessarily a bad thing, but it does, you know, when that's all you have for reference, it does show. Uh, yeah, I uh, I just want to say on behalf of, of Captain, uh, the weeb is always wrong. Um, <laughs> well, sort of. And I, and I get what you're saying there, Torin, um, and I'm going to pass the ball to you, Erwin, here in a second. Uh, but yeah, so we've got... Um, we picked out at least three different kind of factions. We've got the um, people who specifically only consume, let's say, anima, anime, manga, and light novels. And so their entire frame of reference is replicating that. Um, and that's part of perhaps what we could call a, uh, I'll, I'll call it a decadent portion of Iron Age because they don't have other literary influences to help their you know improve their skills they don't have the tools they're stuck in the stone age right um with their uh, with their anime waifus um you mentioned the return to the pulps that was your the first group that came up um and i actually see quite a lot of that though i i suspect that that group is also factionated and we'll see what the other guys here think um and then we had like the lit rpg isekai which as genres in and of themselves are not necessarily the problem, but they are very, it, it, it's sort of like, um, I don't know, like you've got like priests in a church, right? Like the, the priests aren't exactly the problem, but you know, that job attracts some uh, unsavory types, right? Or you can say the same thing for like school teachers. Um, you get some, you know, people who want to take advantage of that position tend to creep in there. Well, the same thing is true for people who really just want to produce um, high volumes of escapism, perhaps. So, Erwin, uh, what do you think about the factions that uh, Torn pointed out? And have you identified any more, or would you make any changes, any corrections, anything like that? Well, I don't usually see a, a um, not like a unification, but there's like a loose connection between what Torn was talking about with pulp, because that one's called pulp rev. And people will try to connect to it because both sides are trying to say, 
we want to have entertainment for the sake of entertainment, which is like the most it's like the most postmodernist thing you can say now because they don't they only they can't make a definition as to what entertainment even is to begin with uh, outside of their own subjective idea of it. And so Pulp Rev is going a bit more modernist. <clears throat> but then the other groups, like the one he was talking about with Isekai and the um, uh, literature RPG, those are more po- those are more postmodernist. And it's also weird to note that a lot of these people, you'll ask them, what is your favorite Isekai? And they'll say, John Carter or Mars. They're trying to re-establish what Isekais are by going way back in the old days, back to modernism, and trying to say they're ignoring postmodernism while embracing it. And then the third camp, I would say it's more like a Christian Catholic thing. There's like a religious thing that people are saying that they're uh, trying to avoid corporations because Christians aren't really allowed in corporations anymore, or they feel like they're being excluded. They're trying to do like a Daily Wire kind of thing, where it's like a religious form of writing. <clears throat> but then even then, this is still missing the point because they're going for religion plus entertainment. What does that become? It becomes those, it becomes those videos, like those uh, Mormon Jesus kind of memes, and they don't have anything outside of the, the, the body, the physical aspect that's also visual. Especially when they try to go for a pulp thing. So there's a pulp Christian thing that's like the third faction I think that Torrin was trying to talk about. Mm, yeah, I, I've seen the, um, the religious thing. And I kind of, to be sympathetic, you know, um, Christians have gotten the, uh, the shit out of the stick for a little bit. Um, they... It, teased quite heavily you know i was when i was in high school i was definitely into like the whole new atheists um i would say to my embarrassment but i i would also say that uh the the christian right at the time was also to its own embarrassment so i don't blame myself entirely and uh but in, you know in the modern day particularly now anything that's seen as normal is under attack it's uh you know assailed by an attempt to queer it to out of you know into oblivion um if you know what Alf Haven means, you know what that means. Uh, but so, so I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic in that regard, but I do see often a couple different things. Um, I see an attempt to inject uh, Christian morality into the framework of stories that actually um, aren't really made to receive it. Uh, particularly if you're doing like pulp era stuff. Um, I don't, you know, if you read a lot of it, those authors were uh, very embracing of uh, what I would describe as like very old ideas, very uh, either they were on the cutting edge of science fiction, in which you have a lot of dystopian kind of uh, really atheistic stuff. Like when I think of um, Lovecraft, I, I kind of think in that way. Uh, and, or if I go to my other guy, Howard, Robert E. Howard, it was very embracing of a parochial um what's the right word uh it's it's really kind of pagan i i mean it's conan the barbarian right like with this land of a bunch of different uh gods and that playing into the the gray morality that really has to do with uh i don't don't want to talk about the friend enemy distinction because i think that's being bandied about by people who i uh, i do like both that i do like and that i don't like 
But I, I think that the old world was much more that. And it doesn't really, you can't really load particularly modern Christianity into that very well. Um, and, and we get trouble with theme and, and things like that. But I do, I am sympathetic because they have been beaten to death and it's not really been, um, you know, the idea that you can have a genuine moral narrative, which I think a lot of the the Christian authors who are part of Iron Age really want to see, like, a, you know, uh, sincere, like sincerity as opposed to satire and irony that has come come about from before yeah i think we do need that in the culture so i don't think they're wrong for wanting it but perhaps you know as as erwin said we have uh we're trying to inject something in there in, in perhaps not the exact fashion that it fits maybe a different tact but who knows i don't know what i'm talking about matt we're back to you what do you think um in terms of factionation among iron age what do you think it might be the right way to categorize it uh, have I or Erwin or Torin said anything ludicrous? Let us know. So I'm going to completely flip this on its head and look at it from the market perspective. So from an authorial perspective, we kind of have this internal desire to write, you know, whatever concepts really kind of grip us uh, to some extent. But if we look at the market, and I think at least most of us here will lament like, you know, lit RPG and Isekai are, are kind of everywhere. Um, why? Why is that the case? Uh, and I think if we kind of contrast this against the golden age of pulp, let's just say in the, you know, from the twenties to the, to the fifties, right? Who are the big names? And the two that come to my head are the shadow and doc savage. Um, so what, what do these two characters represent? Cause these are the two characters that have effectively stood the test of time. You know, the shadow is the precursor to Batman and what does Batman represent? He is a, you know, affluent crime fighter, right? He's the big man that looks out for the little guy effectively. Uh, you know, they have different nuance, but um, just keep things in the modern age. And what is Doc? And who is Doc Savage? He's the Man of Bronze. What does that mean? He's a precursor to the Man of Steel, i.e., Superman. Uh, and it's the same thing. Um, these two series, and effectively a lot of pulp that we also described, like um, Tony and the Barbarian, come from uh, are are tailored to a generation that came from a very different environment. There were raised in a very different environment than what a younger modern audience. And I use modern audience with a gigantic grain of salt because that term is abused, but it, I'm literally talking about, you know, somebody of the age, say 15 to 24 or something like that. Right. So that's what I mean by modern audience. That, that 15 to 24 year old exists in a completely different frame of mind than someone who was 15 to 24 that grew up from the 30s uh, into the 50s, right? So what did America look like back in the 30s and the 50s? Most kids grew up on a in a rural environment, right? Maybe not exactly, you know, my family didn't, didn't own a farm, uh, but it was farm-like. The, the, the environment was not suburban. It was fairly sparse, even up in the Northeast. Um, and the, the values that they were raised with were different, right? So you were very independent. You had to kind of think for yourself. But the 
larger perspective is that the world was in turmoil, right? So what was happening in the 30s? The Great Depression. What happens during a depression? Crime goes up. People start getting robbed more. More um, people go without. Things that you used to be used to, or maybe the elders used to talk about, are gone. Not to come back for some reason. So why did these two characters, you know, what they ev- they evolved into comic book characters because comic books supplanted fiction. Um, but ultimately, these two characters stood out because they were uh, the heroic image that were that was the foil against the reality of today. That was the brand of escapism. So to come back to today, why is Isekai and lit RPG so big? I can't name <laughs> I can't name an equi- two equivalent characters uh, today. I think that there's a lot more mass market to these two. Uh, stories, you know, like maybe ready. One of the characters from Ready Player One might be uh, adequate, but again, that might not be it. Um, what are the problems of younger readers today? Right, they're they're raised in a very uh, how do we say it um, in a very structured environment, right? For the most part, that's not everybody. We're just talking the average here. Um, so, you know, helicopter parents, very structured. Uh, there's a dearth of uh, extracurricular activities they might be beholden to do, obligated to do, on top of their normal studies, um, things of that nature. So why is, it, why is there an escapism concept where the main hero is the everyday guy that gets thrown into this new environment? Uh, it's because in... You know, if we compare that prototype against, say, the shadow, the need of the reader from the shadow is that there's someone out there that's making the world better, but the reader is an independent person. The reader in today's world is probably not feeling like they're an independent person, right? The decisions have been made for them. Their their lives have been dictated to them effectively. So the isekai is... For the most part, we're going to kind of combine Gamelit and Isekai together because it's effectively the same concept. Um, is that they want to be themselves, but they want to be that un- unbounded person, right? So effectively what Isekai is doing is taking away the bounds of reality that they that the reader might see fit and moving them into what is effectively like the golden era uh, reader to, to become the golden era reader in, uh, for all intents and purposes. Like there's a layer of abstraction where like, we have to be able to remove them from reality before we can give them a new reality by which to, uh, act. Uh, and there's, it's a weird level of misdirection. So where am I going with this? Really? The ultimate point is that, we as authors have this desire to write about things without really considering who's going to read them. There's no one that has, there's no one that's going out and hitting people over the head and saying, you're going to read that RPG and you're going to like it. No, they go looking, they go looking for these stories. There's a reason why these stories are so popular. It's not because, you know, there's some tyrant out there. Ha ha ha. I am the God of literature. You should all read lit RPG because it's my favorite. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that there's a need in the market, be it cereals or be it 
um, ebooks or print. Um, and I'm mostly talking about male oriented readers, female oriented readers, uh, have kind of slightly different needs. Um, but that's not really my wheelhouse. And the point there is there's, there's an immense amount of cargo cult that's happening. And to give a little context on what cargo cult means, there have, there was tribes in the Pacific that during World War II basically got time warped from what is effectively Neolithic Stone Age to World War II era American technology. Uh, they, you know, we needed, we as Americans need the islands. They were just so happened to be there. Um, and so they had everything. They certainly had everything they need. They didn't need to go out to hunt and fish and yada, yada, yada. The GIs would just feed them because it was easier to keep them out of the way so that they can build the airstrips and the docks and everything else, right? Uh, then World War II ended and the ships and the airplanes stopped coming. And now they had to go back to hunting and fishing that they kind of forgot how to do or didn't want to do, right? They kind of had this huge bump in uh, quality of life, and now they're back to living in grass huts. Um, so the cargo cult is kind of this lore that the Americans, the white man, stole all of these beautiful resources that their ancestors bestowed upon them. Uh, and so they build grass and stick uh, airplanes and use coconuts to make radio headsets, you know, and they use that they use in their religious prayers to summon the goods of the white man. Um, and, you know, that's the cargo cult. And really, we're seeing a lot of cargo cult in um, in the authorial space because kind of what tying back to what I spoke for before, there's no masters. There's no one. There, there's no there's no golden child to be taken in by the master in order to raise them up and continue to build up this hierarchy and this lineage of of writing in this case, but really a whole bunch of other different disciplines. And now instead of there being the ability for writers to sit down and say, hey, okay, what do I need to write if I want to become a, say, commercial success? Um, I know I'm going to put on my coconut headset and I'm going to build a stick airplane and I'm going to speak the words that the ancestors used to speak. And then I will become the best author to ever live, uh, instead of really just assessing the market. Right. Well, I'm, I'm very happy that we brought it back to, or back, not back, but brought it to the market and the, the idea that we have a target audience. Um, there's lots of summarize there. I'll do my best to be very short about it. So you've got uh, different peoples, right? So, you know, you've got the uh, Depression era, you've got the two world wars. Um, this reminds me a lot of the fourth turning, right? So we've, we have a, a group of people who went through hard times, um, became great men, and then the heroes that were produced in the stories back then, Batman, Superman, um, you know, come out of that. And we juxtapose that with the modern time the easy time perhaps that makes the weak decadent man. Um, and he produces a form of, uh, a, you use the word escapism, Matt, for both of those. Um, I would like to make a small delineation there uh, because I, I don't know that Batman and Superman are necessarily escapism. And the reason why is because Batman and Superman judge you. 
they put up a standard for you to aspire upward toward. Um, whereas like the Isekai Lit RPG uh, push uh, or any other version of, you know, wish fulfillment. Um, it, it's not even that it's wish fulfillment. It's like uh, wish indulgence, perhaps. Right. Because like, I don't know, go back to Conan. Conan is definitely uh, like a self-insert power fantasy for Robert E. Howard. But like you kind of, you know, kind of get judged by conan the barbarian like when i read conan i'm like man i wish i wasn't like 5 8 and 140 because like i wish you know yeah i wish i was a giant scotsman or not scotsman or uh yeah i think he's supposed to be like a scottish highlander basically massively muscled um you know thews like iron blue eyes burning with bale fire uh anyway without without doing too much of that um there there definitely seems to be a different audience that then demanded right from the authors uh, and comic book writers that came after a different sort of fiction, different sorts of heroes. We have now a kind of desire to escape the structure, whereas before was the chaos of war, right? The hard times. And then that kind of begs the question, okay, if we move away from factionations, we really, what we don't, we might not exactly have factions, or if we do, they are products of the demands of the audience available to us birthed by our time and well what question is that i guess the question that comes from there and i think i'm going to uh do a loop this time start with torn then move back to erwin then move back around to matt before I, I start scrambling the order and lose track of it um so so torn hearing all of that my question that i'll throw to you is do you think no, better question. What is it exactly that you think that modern audiences uh, for fiction are looking for in their fiction? Um, and I want to frame that question. So not just what are they looking for, uh, let's say particularly out of the Iron Age of, of, of fiction, of fiction writing, but let's relate this to content and then let's also answer it in terms of composition so i'll ask that question one more time so we're not because i realized i rambled a bit so thorin from the iron age fiction writers what is it that our audiences of this modern era produced by this modern hyper coddled you know jonathan height coddling the american mind structured society what is it they're looking for in terms of the content of the work they're consuming what is it that they're looking for if anything in terms of the style or the quality of the writing. Because I do want to tie that in here eventually. So, yeah, that's that's the question, Tori. Why don't you take it from there? I guess one thing I should ask is, like, you mean, like, the the people that are consuming this Iron Age stuff, not, like, mainstream, cons- or not just, like, the average, I guess, uh, consumer? Yeah, let's let's focus on the people consuming it. But then if you if you want to go outside of that, that would be welcome as well. Because I really want to know, what is it that people are actually consuming? What is, because Matt's right to bring up, what is the market? What is it people want? What is it they're aware of that they're looking for? I guess I could, just depending on what I've seen, I could give, I could say uh, that they're looking for good things, and I could also, I've noticed that they're looking for some pretty bad things as well. Um, I guess, again, it depends on the camp, but um I guess one thing, I guess like the most obvious thing is that they're looking, you know, I think this really just goes for any type of modern audience is that they're basically looking for something that has a soul to it. You know, something that is, it's very obvious that any kind of corporate entertainment, even outside of the literary world is just, 
you know, has failed them, you know, regardless of, of the, you know, the fact that it belongs to some big IP or some nostalgic property. I'd say that, you know, even among the people that uh, maybe are kind of uh, on the opposite side of the aisle as, as us, subconsciously they want something that has, I would say, substance in it in some way, you know, where the author or the creator cared. You know, because I think when that is the case, I don't really know how to entirely describe this, but you it's almost like you can sense it. You know, you have like some sixth sense for the fact that, you know, the content you're consuming or reading or anything like that, you know, you can tell whether the author cared about it. And I really do think that does dictate the quality, you know, on a level that a, a lot of people probably might not realize. Um for a lot of modern audiences, admittedly, I think, you know, and this is not exactly a good thing to say, but there is kind of this uh, this need for an appeal to their ego, I have noticed. Um, a lot of people, they don't seem to be able to consume a story or identify with the character, especially, unless a lot of times, you know, it's on the superficial level more so than the emotional level, unless this character basically reminds them them of themselves in some way you know that's kind of the, especially that goes back to you know the yeah uh, this especially goes back to the representation crowd but i've even seen it on our side you know where you have all these uh protagonists that have to be these antisocial losers otherwise you know the uh th that type of audience can't identify with them and can't sympathize with them um, I guess I could I could go on, but those are like the you know two big reasons, good and bad, that uh or two um things that I'd say modern audiences are looking for. Yeah, I definitely have seen that as well. Um, I don't want to steal. I I feel like I could though. I don't want to. I don't want to steal Irwin's thunder. So we've got uh, audiences of the modern time produced by the modern age. They're um, torn is put forward. They're looking for souls, like the, you know, the, the the author cared. There's some type of spirit inhabiting the stories that these people are writing. Um, that also, though, we tend to have a looking. You mentioned before the body, right? Uh, identification with the body, the the superficial identifications. Uh, we typically see that amongst the the woke. But uh, Torn just pointed out he's seen it amongst others as well. Perhaps that's the lit RPG. Um, crowd who are let's say the more indulgent types who just want a blank slate for themselves to project onto um i don't know what have you seen what do you think in terms of what people are looking for um out of this iron age of fiction um in terms of what torn just talked about soul or uh let's say indulgence of the ego um or also you know i in terms of the general content or composition of the stories, what are, what is the audience that we're perhaps trying to sell to? What do they want? Specifically for Iron Age, right? Yeah, start there. But like I said, if you want to expand, please do. Okay. Because when it comes to audiences in general, they're looking for something that can either uh, fill up their time slot, some kind of filler. That's the blind entertainment thing that people are talking about. But that also translates into something like a sitcom or daytime television. Uh, simple YouTube videos or like Instagram videos are like five minutes long and it's just like pointless nonsense, right? 
that stuff is very appealing to what we were ca- calling the body. That's all, um, uh, it's what Kierkegaard would call the aesthetic stage or the aesthetic lifestyle. It's just, uh, like, like colors and sounds that feel appealing, like birds singing in the background. You don't get any knowledge from a bird singing in the background, but you like the sound of it. And then there's the other side that uh, Torin was talking about, which is, is like the soul or spirit. That's the gold that we were talking about. And that's where you get closer to a truth, and you also feel awe. You feel inspired, fearful. You feel like it's bigger than anything. You also feel like this large connection as it's a hyper-truth. And Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot, where he talks about how like the Bible... Is something that's like a hyper truth, even though it's fiction, it attaches the truths inside of it in a symbolic form that can talk to pretty much everybody, and people get lost in the literal sense of it because it's not supposed to be taken literally; it's symbolic. And there's also an other side that's trying to go towards what is the Mercury or mind, which is also what we're talking about as insanity or chaos. That is avant-garde kind of styles that's the oh this is new this is creative this is original well how do you even determine originality in this day and age like everything's been done so all you're doing is just making combinations oh i'll make uh i saw a post about this other day i'll make a western but i'm gonna include dragons is that a good idea and people are like yeah do that why not like well what what what's the story even about? You're just giving me two ideas that you just kind of slap together. It's like a banana of a hamburger. Like what what are you even gonna do with that? People are attracted to that because that's a novelty. And uh, other writers, specifically um, amateur or not even like not e- like people just trying to aspire to be writers, they'll be attracted to the originality aspect because they want to be the new thing. They want to be the person that people talk about. Hey, aren't you the guy that put Westerns with dragons or knights with aliens. Like, yep, that's me. They, they want to be hit by that celebrity. And even the readers want to be hit with some form of celebrity when it comes to being a hipster. Because they want to say, hey, aren't you the guy that reads that stuff? Yep, that's me. Hipster mentality is still very present. And that's the more... Um, Mercury mind thing. We can't have everybody be this hipster. That becomes a big, massive cultural poison. That's what we call anti-culture. And so, the majority of people are trying to create a culture even in Iron Age. But Iron can't quite make a culture. At the very least, it can kind of sustain the entertainment aspect. But even then, it needs something else beyond that. And that's why it's trying to Avoid and tack on to the corporate stuff without saying it is. There's this issue where everything that they talk about is inspired by corporate uh, stories. Like, they're like, hey, I want to do something like this pulp stuff. Well, that pulp stuff was from corporations. But now they're trying to avoid only current corporations because corporations now are trying to do things that are woke. They're trying to reject white people or straight white males um they're trying to push agendas and all that people are saying now is like i don't want agenda i don't want that propaganda i just want art or some form of media that will teach me something that's important or at the very least waste my time in in a a joyable way which is going to be aesthetically pleasing and that's why a lot of people they're trying to force uh this like 
sexual thing back into art. They're trying to almost like make like hentais or some form of, uh, uh, how do you say, like comic books that are sexually appealing or video games are sexually appealing. They're like, hey, I made a sexually appealing video game or comic book. Are you going to enjoy that? And people are like, hell yeah, why not? You know, sexual. Uh, sexy woman. Yeah, that's good. I like that. And that's a really easy thing to do. But does it create culture? Not at all. Like, you can't make a culture like, purely on sexy women or sexy men. You have to have that order and that truth that creates a structure to then create culture. And that's where we've lost everybody in the audience. You know, Iron Age doesn't do it. Pulp Rev can't really do it. Wokeness doesn't do it. It's just one form of anti-culture after another. Or even like a stagnant culture. It doesn't really do much to destroy it, but doesn't really create more. And that's why people feel very lost. And uh, just to uh, wrap it up, I think when it comes to alchemy, you can easily explain this through what's called the green lion. Green lion is vitriol. It's like an acid. And it's based off of the chemical that's able to melt gold. Vitriol is a desire or some form of aggressive like emotion. And this is combined with gold to create the self. You have to create in order to create the self, you have to you have to have this desire to have something and then the thing that it is. And then when that's combined, you have your own individualism and that's what people are trying to create by creating their own form of art their own form of escapism but they don't have the thing itself in their hands they have a, a mimicry which is what matt was talking about with his cargo cult it's a it's a it's a it's like a straw man of the thing that they want to create and then they keep talking past people talking past the audience ignoring the audience and that passion's still there, that desire's still there, but they're not creating the result they want. That causes frustration. Frustration causes some kind of more acidic, more destructive form of emotions. And that's why we have this big, huge outrage online, among people. There's depression. There's even something called digital dementia, where people go crazy simply by being online because they're depending on all the stuff that's online rather than their own brain or their own lives. Like, the, the, the world that we're in is slowly degrading mentally, spiritually, as bodies as well. And that's why when we talk about Iron Age, we're like, is this even helping? Not really. But people see it as less poisonous. And that's why they're praising it. But the audience needs that, that actual sun, the, the, um, the actual lion, in order to counter the green lion when it gets combined okay that makes sense right so to, to sum it down we culture is like the um the walls of the garden that make it a place of refuge rather than the wilderness where you get devoured by monsters right um mm. we don't have that we we it's been disintegrating for a long time uh, Matt pointed out earlier that like it kind of does need to finish some manner of disintegration because without that you can't build again and um, obviously if what was there before is degrading you can't just go back to it right like if um, 
I was actually just looking at uh, houses today, um, preparing for a move, and one of the houses wasn't checking out, but was near near it. Literally, was the falling apart. Like the house, like one of the whole walls was leaned away, so the house was like split open, and there was like a massive hole in the roof, like a freaking giant fist smashed down into it. Right, so you can't just move back into that house. Like you, you kind of have to like, okay, we'll tear it down. We'll start again. However. They still need, um, Torn kind of talked about this too, the form of a house. Like you can't come back and say, okay, we have to tear down the substance that was this house, but we're also not going to put the proper form of a house when we build again. Because if you do that, um, you're not going to have a house, right? Because a house is not merely the substance. It is the form that gives uh, way to the, uh, the telos, the purpose, the function of that house. Those are the lessons that you mentioned before. So we don't have the proper order um, in order to survive. What we have is a kind of um, slow drip of, uh, of vitriol. Now, the question that comes to mind, and I haven't heard anyone answer this really satisfactorily, and I'm going to throw this to you, Matt, because I do think you bring up a good point when you point out, well, you know, the Iron Age of writing didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of particular people, right? Like this, these are the people and these are their market demands. Now, I lament this as someone who, like, I'm a, you know, real lover of language and, uh, you know, I really like what some people might call purple prose at times. Um, I like the complexity of composition. Um, I like stories that are deep thematically and um, are, let's say, mature and maturing in a way that when you read them, you become more um, of a person than you were when you started. I, 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 that's my particular interest. However, and this is a big however, that's not seemed to be, to me anyway, what people are demanding, right? Because that's not the age we came out of. We didn't come out of World War II, right? We didn't come out of the independent society where the world was at war, people were dying, um, you had to kind of forge your own path, you know, the hard times that make strong men. Sometimes we came out of, we came out of like the overly structured, protected, soft times. So, if indeed, what do you think about this, Matt? If indeed the audience is not there, should we even like, should it really be that we're producing um, essentially what are uh, appealing, escaping, escapist stories of the time? Or should we be doing otherwise? Like, what kind of um, quality, and I mean that in terms of like the types, right? Not just better, worse quality but like you know like a qualitative study right um what kind of qualities of work should we be producing should it be in in alignment with what we see like most of the audience is is asking for or or are they or are most of them even asking for that what do you think the pain about being an artist is that often the vision and the reality are almost separated from each other uh, to give an example of this, if you look at the Mona Lisa, they did x-rays on it and it started out like a completely different painting, like the, the underlying charcoal markings where it was completely different. Um, the Mona Lisa was a commission and, uh, Da Vinci had to satisfy his patron in order to get his money. And we see that throughout everywhere, you know. The painting on a Sistine Chapel, it clearly had to be in the glory of God. 
if you wanted to go up and start painting like neat Roman historical pictures, it wouldn't work, right? The patron, the church, created a constraint that it had to be in the glory of God. It's a beautiful, you know, it's a it's a beautiful composition. Don't get me wrong. But the constraint there was that the art must be about the thing the patron desires. Now, this is a discrepancy I see among a dearth of artists. It's not just writers. Um, and the overall sentiment is that I want to make what I want to make. Damn the market. Which is great if you're making it for yourself. Um, and I fall into that trap when I was just kind of starting out. I didn't really understand a lot of things about writing in general. So the, the core focal point was me, right? I had to, I had to adhere to my tastes because if I gave it to somebody else, it was going to, you know, it was going to get pilloried. It was terrible. Um, and a lot of artists stay in that mode, regardless of what skill level they are. They could probably be the greatest artist ever but they only want to make what they want to make unbounded. Uh, and art, my argument is that art is a craft of constraints. If you have an unbounded artist, you're going to end up with a banana on a wall eventually. And that's what we're seeing. Um, so we've kind of been given a a great opportunity. We're no longer, you know, as an artist, if we were, you know, say 500, 500 years ago, if we were in, in an age 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, what have you, um, we would be hoping that very rich people would take an interest in our art because the chances of the common man having enough money to take interest in our art was very low. Uh, that is to say the, the discretionary funds of everyday people weren't high enough to warrant, you know, the luxury of art in general. Um, now there's two things that happen, right? Technology is caught up so that the barrier to entry to art drastically reduced and the amount of money that people have greatly increased in general. Uh, and this kind of changes over time, but just if we look at it as a linear, as a linear graph, it's, uh, you know, it's mostly up as far as people having extra money to spend on art. So if we fast forward to today, um, a lot of artists view the market as the enemy, right? They want to make me do the things I don't want to do. And I don't, you know, I want to, I want to make my art and everybody should love it. Uh, which is not how art has ever worked in you know, any human society, you're either going to be beholden to one very wealthy person or you're beholden to a lot of people who want to consume as a, as an affordable luxury. Both of those are still available today. If you could find someone who's rich and they absolutely love your work, they're going to give you a constraint. And the constraint is whatever they want to see. Or you go to the crowd and the crowd already has kind of predefined um, notions of what they want. And that's what we know as genre. So if we think about what should we do as artists when we make, if you don't care about anybody else, like if you're just writing for you, it 
doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what anybody says. Write for yourself. That will that work will never see the light of day anywhere else. Maybe you know, maybe mom or grandma would love that to to read it. Oh, sweet, you know, good job, honey. But the reality is that if you want to be a commercial success, that means that the crowd is your patron, and you have to adhere to their constraints. And that constraints is genre and the tropes contained within. Now, does that mean that you are bounded? You are shackled to your desk and your hand is latched only to those specific tropes and genres? No, you can mix and match. There's evidence abound, even if you look at the Golden Age of Pulp. Golden Age of Pulp before the 50s, there was no such thing as like genre. You wrote a, Writers would write according to subject matter. If you submitted to Adventure Magazine, you were writing an adventure story. If you wrote to... Um, you know, naval, uh, naval um, tales at magazine. You'd write about ships. Uh, the that's the constraint that I'm kind of talking about here. There's always going to be new opportunities for a skilled artist to change the matter of those constraints, right? I really, I might really like writing adventure stories, and maybe there's a place to publish those that doesn't really have a genre. It might be part sci-fi, it might be part fantasy, it might be uh, werewolf romance with uh, something, you know what I mean? So, really, you know, if you want to be doing this in a way that it puts food on the table, you have to accept those constraints. And just to tie this all back together, uh, it's the market. We need to kind of define escapism versus wish fulfillment because uh, we kind of grazed across it, but we didn't really, we didn't really dig, dig deep and compare why. At least from my point of view, back then the golden age of pulp was escapism, and today we see more wish fulfillment. Escapism, uh, and I agree with you, Marquise is that there is a higher standard by which we are held. Uh, and it's in this, this fictional format. So when we read uh, an escapist uh, tale, we end up actually giving ourselves a higher standard by which to reach. So we use Superman and Batman. Uh, those are escapist tales because they hold us to a higher standard. If they were wish fulfillment, they would be a modern um, Superman tale, which is why a lot of these superhero stories today are completely just wiping away the market. They're wish fulfillment. They want to be a powerful thing that dictates how people should do things. There's no standard that's being held, that, that is being adhered to. It is the arbitrism of a of the writer. Really, It's, it's really just that arbitrary notion of the of what the writer desires being cast onto the character rather than the character upholding the philosophical, um, let's just say the philosophical mores, right? The, the, the things that our culture holds highest that is being portrayed. And I'll leave it there. I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, so I'll see if I can do well, your, yours was a summary. I'm going to try to summarize, but that was a, very lengthy explanation. Let me see if I can put it all together. So we've got constraints, market constraints. And those are I actually agree totally that they have to be considered. 
Um, it does open some questions, right? Um, so the questions that then come up from the constraints of the market is, are those the only constraints? Or rather, better better question, are there not multi multiple markets, right? Like multiple audiences toward ones which one can sell? Um, we've we've definitely identified the um, what I would I would use slightly different terms than the new Matt. I would say that um, the old stuff actually is not quite as escapist, and the reason why is because it confronts rather than allows one to run, right? So um, if you're confronted morally and charged with being a better person, because uh, I don't know, like let's go Spider Man, right? Great power, great responsibility. So like as you are able to do something, you're actually responsible for doing something. Therefore, if you don't, when you have the opportunity, you have a moral failing. That doesn't really feel like escapism because it's it's the you know, your own moral judgment coming to bear on you. Now, when we talk about the the wish fulfillment might be that um one is free of constraints. We have that today, but Erwin pointed out very, very rightly that that is also a kind of cultural acid. And I guess the question that comes out of that is, what do we do? What do we do when um, the largest part of the market, which I definitely think, um, and you have to, and I do agree with you, Matt, that you have to address what the market is demanding to some way, shape, or form. You have to have some type of constraint on your work you can't just produce whatever you want um i think with erwin and torin and you spoke to that where it's the trap within their own subjectivity the the a lot of these you know uh massive ways of all authors writing just what they want but at the same time we do see an audience who is at the same time eating that um now it, what's inter it's interesting right because we were seeing essentially a reduction of quality but a demand for the reduction of quality and this is equality in the terms of better or worse. So um, let's see. I'll, I'll jump back to, to you, Torin, for this one. Um, do you think that we are correct in our assumption that the majority of the market actually does demand for, um, let's say, what I would call escapist, what Matt was calling wish fulfillment, which I think we mean the same thing when we use these two different words. Um, you know, do you think that that is the only, do you think that's the most of the readers? Do you think that's like the only audience out there? Or do you think that there might be a different audience operating on a different set of desires that would produce a different set of constraints that an author could, could market toward? Um, yeah. Do you, yeah. That's really the question. Like, is, is this the market? Is this the only market? Is that the only game in town? Are we, are we doomed to, dissolve our culture if we want to eat as authors i would say i would say no it's not the only market but maybe this is just me being cynical but i you know i have seen the sales that some of these things make i do think it i'm not gonna say it's the majority of the market but i do think it's a large portion of it that kind of you know does want this very um low effort you know, ego gratifying, you know, uh, wish fulfillment fantasy stuff. Uh, but um, I do not know. I don't think it's the sole audience. Um, I th In fact, I think if anything, even though, you know, 
the kind of uh, quality works that you're talking about. I think that would that has a smaller potential market, but I think it has a more dedicated one. I almost would like to compare it to music, you know. You have the basic mainstream stuff that, you know, attracts the average consumer. And, you know, they, they fork out their money over this. But you also have many other smaller, you know, uh, artists that have very dedicated followings, you know. They might not have, you know, the type of visibility or mass appeal that... Um, sorry, something's going on. Um, they might ha not have, like, the type of mass appeal... But, you know, I'd say where, the, you know, they don't have mass appeal, they have, I don't, I don't want to, like, say, uh, it's almost like a cult, but, you know, they're basically among, like, their, their following, you know, they kind of have a sort of, um, they evoke this sort of devotion that a lot of these bigger things do not have, you know. Yeah, I want to ask to you to expand particularly but um so you mentioned uh, like a cult following or like you think of like a cult classic um that's what that reminded me of but it also reminded me of a kind of uh religiousness what do i mean by that i kind of mean it in the petersonian sense where you know matt brought up the, the fact that there are constraints and we could say fairly enough that a large giant portion of the market um they're indulgent they want to be self-gratified by, uh, let's say, it's interesting. They want to be gratified by easy, lowbrow stuff. Um, perhaps they're even afraid, I, I've thought this too, that their egos might be harmed. And I've experienced this. Their ego is harmed when they experience something that might be above their reading level, for instance. Like people who, um, and I don't mean to insult anyone by this because you know the education systems have failed you. But if a word has, or a book has too many large words, uh, we have a, a resident author uh, whose work I'll promote right now, Maya Tenshi. She's a very good writer. Her Dracula's Guest and uh, series, so Dracula's Guest and Dracula's Match are very good. Um, but I do know that the, there have been, in the process of those works, critiques made by unnamed people um, of essentially like, hey, you're using too big of words. Right, because uh, if you don't know uh, Amaya, she's very well read, very well researched, reads a lot of old literature, and so her diction is very strong. So actually, this should be a question back to Torin. Um, and my question is: Do you think perhaps that there are other audiences, or at least one other audience aside for the self gratifiers, whose constraints is something like? Uh, I want to frame this with religious language because it's what comes to my mind. But their their constraint is something like they're looking for work that is in accord with God. Um, that and I'm going to tie that into something that has soul, like you mentioned before. Um, do you think is that the kind of other audience or other other audiences you you were mentioning? And how do you think they're big enough that we could actually really market to them? Or do you think that is um, or are we being you know the rebellious artist? Saying, like, no, man, I'm going to do what I want to do. What do you think? Oh, I think, like, not only are they there, but I think it's, like, I'd even venture to say that it's a completely untapped market. I mean, you know, even though it doesn't really hit the mark, like, something like just the, you know, the Iron Age, you know, is kind of a symptom of the fact that I would, you know, that subconscious need is there. You know, there's definitely, there's, 
even among the people that consume this kind of stuff that we're talking about, this, you know, this subpar stuff, there's kind of, I think even they kind of feel the subconscious need for what we're talking about, you know, maybe they've kind of grown a, accustomed to the taste of, you know, of, of sludge, but I think it's definitely there for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to turn to you, Erwin, in a second, but I just want to say, you know, that makes sense. This make a lot of sense because we do see both work that kind of everyone recognizes is uh, low, low skill, self-indulgence. It's the trap within subjectivity. That is in reference to the Iron Age, or as Erwin put it earlier, the Stone Age, where, you know, we've got everyone in their own little subjective bubbles, but then we have people mass consuming it. Um, at the same time, just like, you know, reminds me, you know, here in West Virginia, we have heroin addicts <laughs> and we have a lot of them and they don't really have a good relationship with, with heroin, but they definitely need it and they want it. And to move away from it is difficult because they have to confront the realities of their own existence. They have to confront the realities of their own lives, right? So anything that would be, let's say, judging them, like the old heroic narratives that I think I've heard quite a lot. Iron Age wants to reproduce. They want to reproduce the heroic narratives that gave rise to such characters um, like Batman and Superman. They want to do that. But we we are seeing that perhaps the because the mass market doesn't... they It's not that they don't have a demand. They don't have... Uh, Nietzsche would probably say they have decadent tastes. They've, uh, or Aristotle would say they've habituated themselves into vice. And now they're at best continent men, but much of the time vicious men, like, like having, you know, succumbed to their vices. Um, Erwin, what do you think, man? Like, do you think that there is that audience out there? Do you think even the decadent audience is waiting for just the right work that pulls them out of their state of decadence that moves them, you know, into, uh, let's say that shifts their taste towards something that's more transformative. Uh, to reiterate the question, uh, do you mean that audiences are trying to create a new trend? Um, not that audiences are are trying to. Though certainly, they you could kind of argue they do. But do you think that there is an audience out there waiting for, um, let's say, something that isn't just the subjective uh i'll be rude about it like isn't just waiting for subjective garbage right like obviously we see a lot of production of that subjective garbage uh because there are no gatekeepers there's no masters there's no you know uh people verifying quality or or, or there's hardly anyone out there to emulate uh anymore and so we see these people producing this people are consuming it like mad just like if we you know yeah. If you go and, and sell garbage, you know, junk food on the street, you can sell it really easily. Even though everyone knows it's not nutritious, they know it's not good for them, but they, they've they gotten into the habit of just downing uh, Snickers bars left and right. And so that's that's what they eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, okay. Is I it, it – yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it, it's just uh, is there an audience waiting for the kind of nutritious food, the kind of nutritious writing and fiction – that would bring them up out of that? Or do you think that there's just the people waiting who are just waiting for that period, like who aren't necessarily uh, succumb to vice? Well, because I don't know who is actually demanding this garbage. It's not like they're demanding garbage and like because it's garbage. We, we think that there's something better about it. 
because there's some kind of taste that we feel like people don't eat candy bars because they think that's like the most nutritious thing in the world they eat it because oh it tastes good for a little bit and later they're like oh why did i eat so much ice cream why did you eat that it's something like mcdonald's is the same thing there's a lot of advertising for these things and they go oh well this must be popular this must be big you know why would they advertise it if it wasn't you don't see advertisements for spinach or well i mean you used to for like the popeye thing but <laughs> You know, you don't see as much talking about the good stuff. You see a lot of talking about whatever people want to give you. And um, I forget what island this is. I think it's Samoa. But there's an island that's like the most unhealthy place or an unhealthy country in the whole world. And it's because all they eat is like spam and other stuff. If they ate a normal meal, they would probably really enjoy that. They just don't have access to it. Or they probably just don't even know how to make them. And I think that this is why when it comes to indie, we're just we're just dealing with really bad cooks and people who don't know what the hell they're doing. And people will go, okay, I support you because you're doing your dream. I support you because you're doing the things that you desire to do. You have all this passion. You really want to do this. You want this to be your lifestyle. It's another form of wokeness at this point because it's the same thing as when people say, Oh, you want to be LGBT? Okay, I support your lifestyle. I support your passion. I support this and that. It's driving people into this weird realm where they're being supported uh, from groups like around them, but they're not being supported in something that can help them. And like you were saying with heroin addicts, it's like if you say, okay, I support your heroin addiction. I'm not going to get in the way of it. I'm going to support that you're a heroin addict. Like, who in their right mind is going to say that kind of thing? Instead, we should say, I support your healthiness. I support that you should become healthy. But that takes action. That takes uh, almost like a, like, like a fatherly or motherly mentality where, like, eat your goddamn vegetables. Uh, stop eating fast food. You got to slap candy out of people's uh, hands. It, it, it's the most aggressive thing you can do. And of course, if it's a stranger, you're like, who, who are you to tell me I can't eat candy? But we have to have that kind of mentality as fellow artists if we're going to fix the art itself. Because it, it, if you ever have like a restaurant and they're constantly making terrible food, it's always rotten, the audience leaves eventually. And the, the, the news travels fast, especially when people are really disappointed. But if it's a way that's fast food, people get stuck in that like, I'll accept it mentality because everybody's so passive. So in, in a way, uh, artists need to drive this new way of thinking that's more nutritious, even if the audience is stuck in this acceptability thing. And that's what happens with, um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example of like a current thing that really sucks, but people just accepted it. I guess Avatar, like the second one, it was incredibly huge highly marketed a lot of people want to go see it but is that the best they can do obviously not same thing with five nights at freddy's like that was a big thing for halloween is that the best that five nights at freddy's could do is that the best halloween thing we can do obviously not but there's this uh addiction group that was almost manipulating the numbers so there's this big group of people who are ignoring all this media and they're the silent majority. I hate to use that term, but they really are the silent majority. And then you have these passionate addicts that are inflating numbers, 
tricking artists to think, oh, wait, 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 there's something over here, there's something over here. That's why Iron Age has an audience, but the audience is within a very secluded circle away from an actual audience. So, you know, to return to that <laughs> the terrible uh, comparison we're making, it really is like a big giant group of homeless druggies buying drugs from each other while normal people are trying to work on normal things and engage in normalcy. And I think that's why people get really confused when they're looking at um, how impressive something in India is. Because there's all this support, shouldn't really be there, but we can't say anything because then that's too aggressive and people will instantly attack you. Like, you know, imagine trying to slap a heroin needle out of a heroin addict's hand. Like, they're going to attack you. And I think that's what the yeah. real problem is when it comes to trying to determine the audience is that the inflated numbers, the addictions, with this, which is part of the aesthetic, um, the aesthetic stage that Kierkegaard talks about, we had to go more towards an ethical stage to then enter the religious stage. We don't need to do the religious stage yet. We just, at the very least, need the ethical stage, which is do better, have the nutrients, and embrace that healthy lifestyle. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause it a counter. Not that I disagree with you in terms of like I w I want all that stuff to happen, like um, but I've got a, a bit of skepticism, and it comes from my background um, in exercise physiology. That's what I got my undergraduate degree in, and mm -hmm. it sounds like a bit of a tangent. Uh, but I'm a bit of a health nut. Like I exercise like a madman every day. I'm very strict with my diet, um, to sometimes the annoyance of other people, and. I, even when people have expressed directly to me that they would like to improve their states of health, and they know that I both emulate or not, I'm a uh, figure of emulation for them at least. Like, there's obviously people who are much more fit, much healthier than I am, because there's like people who are, you know, athletic freaks and whatnot. But, um, they they'll even sometimes ask for advice so but then they they don't won't follow through um and this makes me think mm. of the difference between uh what nietzsche might call the eagles of the, of the sheep or like the master and the slave um or the noble and the herd and i think that this is something that we we should recognize maybe i'm wrong on this right i hope i, I actually desperately hope i'm wrong but I don't trying, think you're it's trying to say that they don't want to put the effort into being healthy, even if they desire the healthiness. Yes. And the question is, is it even has it ever been possible to do otherwise? Like, obviously, Jordan Peterson, like he's a good example, right? So he showed up, he started wagging his fingers, at everybody and say, like, clean up your room, bucko. And then we had this enormous, mm. you know, groundswell of people. But I will say. And I think I'm going to pass pass the the mic over to to Matt. I will say that even though, let's say someone like Jordan Peterson, in terms of pausing responsibility and you know clean up your room, do something yourself, get a skill, be responsible, be a morally good person, like you mentioned, moving toward ethics. I think actually, as popular as he is, and as big as he, you know, as, as fast and rocket, you know, he rocketed into kind of celebrity, right? I think that his fan base is actually not, still not most people. I think it's still a small group. It's still niche. It's still, you know, like maybe 
that can support a few people like that niche audience it can, and, and it could support them to massive successes. But, uh, but I guess I'll pause, throw this back to Matt. Like Matt is what we're saying, like really a bunch of cope from the people who won't be like that, you know, on the tw- upper 20th percentile of like authors who succeed in a niche. And it's really only the top 10 percentile that actually get any, economic success and are able to support themselves on their writing like is, is that what we're, we're doing because i'm actually terrified that it, that is quite what we're doing right now like is it the fact that like we we should realize that we're never going to make people really want to no matter how many like popeye the sailor mans we produce we're not going to make people want to eat their spinach what do you think so a general trend I've noticed in business is that very successful businesses satisfy the things that people need today. So you can buy a grocery store and be a successful millionaire grocer, right? You're not innovating. People need food. It's essential. Uh, you know, you've got to run the numbers and, and keep things flowing. But that's a, a problem. That's a, a, a solution to a problem that is today. Extremely successful businesses are visionaries that solve problems that are on the horizon. So what does that mean in terms of writing and artistry? The question that we need to look at is, are we willing to take a business approach to solve problems? And that's not to say that no, art, business is an art in some ways, shape or form. But what I'm trying to get at is we want to make money and we don't want to go to the nobility in Florence and beg for their patronage. So if we're not going to do it the old school way, we have to look at what's in front of us. And what's in front of us is a commercial, relatively free market. So what does it mean to be a top 20 top 10 percenter top one percenter as far as artists if it is from the perspective of income then it's a business like it or not if it's someone who has written a story that has lasted hundreds of years there's no way for a living human to ever measure if they were successful so let's just stick with money um If you want to be a commercial success in that very successful bracket, you have to look at what's happening today and write for what's happening today. That's uh, some some business oriented authors call it writing to market. You must write to market if you want to be very successful. Okay, that's the top, say, 10 percent. So that means, you know, if we look at today, you're writing Isekai lit RPG or game lit. That's how you be very successful. Why, what is the market going to need tomorrow? Uh, I'm just going to give the disclaimer. I don't have a magic ball. I don't know. So I, I'm not going to tell you this is what you must do. But there are ways that we can... There are ways that we can kind of divine our, uh, our own perspective on things and run in that direction. The unfortunate reality of being a visionary is that not all visions are, let's say, lucid. 
you may have some really good ideas and they might be they might be needed in some regard and then if we look at the larger audience most people might not need that vision and that's what we'd call maybe a failed inventor or a failed artist right so really it comes down to execution as well. So you, you I, th I think for the most part, our circle um, understands that there's a, a philosophical dilemma in, in modern entertainment. Uh, the old ways posited a, an ideal that related to our culture. And you might even argue that a lot of them ta uh, stemmed back to folk, to, to classic folk tales. Um, to folklore, you know, uh, for instance, Cinderella or uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, uh, Snow White, right? Um, uh, Grimm's fairy tales, effectively. So how do we take that idea and move forward? The question is, if we look back, are those things that we've lost necessary? Is, is, the, is how we could probably take stock of this. If they are necessary, then the question isn't how do I reintroduce that? It is how do I create a breadth of work that is unavoidable? If you are convinced that the things that are gone need to come back, they, they're like, they're not just broccoli. They are the only source of nutrition that will be in a hundred mile radius around you. Let's just say, uh, in, in the coming years, then you have an obligation to just act upon that. The but just to come back to that that being that visionary is if you are wrong if there is another source of nutrition that comes along that supplants your broccoli for Hershey bars or what have you you are sunk so that is one way to take stock things if the old ways are better how how likely is it that people will hunger for it in the future and if not. Where are we today that needs improvement? So let's just, the way I liken a lot of, uh, let's just say Steve Jobs, right? Let's take Steve Jobs. He built a trillion dollar company. There's absolutely no reason that we can't look at him from a business lens and transpose it into an artistic vision. So what did Steve Jobs do? He did not go to the divine and completely rework everything that we knew about electronics. No, he started in his garage with Steve Wozniak and he built a computer that was very similar to other computers, but they did something that the, that the market needed at the time. It was configurable. It was more configurable than any other home PC and that gave them success. So then what happened? He floundered. He built the Mac. The Mac was terrible. It failed. He got ousted. So then what did he do? He looked into the future again. What did he want? He wanted Apple back again. So what did he do? He built the thing that Apple needed and was going to need in the future. And they had no choice but to buy him out. And then he ousted the CEO and became CEO again. So then what did he do? He looked into the future, the near future, not the far future. He, you know, they, there needed to be an evolution in computers. So he built the new Mac, the Mac that he wanted to build, and it became an okay success. Um, this is in, you know, we're right now in a period when 
Apple was wildly successful, but if we go back to 1999, it was an okay company. It was probably somewhere on the level of, you know, uh, Dell or uh, Gateway at the time was a computer company, right? They they were kind of in the herd. They weren't a revolutionary company. They were just different, which is the stepping stone that he needed. So then they began to innovate and build things that people kind of needed. The i the iPod. The iPod was not a completely brand new idea. Sony was building digital, um, digital audio Walkmans for the better part of 10 years before Apple decided to build one. And it wasn't the fact that they, that Apple made one that made it popular. It was the convenience factor. They saw that all of these things were complicated and yada, yada, yada. And it gave them an opportunity to draw people into their ecosystem. So then what did they do? They built a brand for, um, they built a brand for very, uh, uh, mobile devices, right? So that's what the iPod was. So what did they do then? They saw that, uh, businesses really liked smart devices that could do things more than a dumb flip phone. A dumb flip phone, you had T9, you might have had Snake on it. That's all that cell phones used to do. Um, business phones were kind of like mobile workstations. They had flip open keyboards and they could do PC things. This is really kind of deviating, but really what my point is, every iteration that brought him to tr a trillion dollars was not a, a divination of completely uh, off, off the beaten path ideas. He deviated just enough so that people could relate to it and potentially adhere to it. If he had built the iPod in the 70s, nobody would know what to do with it because there, was, there wasn't the ecosystem to enable the iPod. The iPod could have only been built in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so to tie this back to writing, how do we get to be that top 10, top one percenter is that we don't reinvent the wheel. We look at the wheel. We think we look at the things that the wheel does do, does wrong and we iterate on it. And if we shouldn't expect wild success with each iteration, wild success might happen as we continue to build better wheels. Eventually, we are going to deviate. I'll just wrap this up. Eventually, to get to that 1%, we will have deviated away from a wheel that is something that is so unique, but was so iteratively created that people had no choice but to adhere to the wheel that we created. Okay. You know, I kind of like that argument. I, I was really thinking in the whole time, relating this back, Matt, what you said about constraints. And... uh I'm going to make a pitch to the group and you guys can respond. Um, this will be more of a, a free for all. So whoever wants to respond once I'm, I'm done, you can, and then everyone can just go and I won't try and summarize after. So my thought was, okay, we do in fact at the moment have um, a largely decadent culture. They know it's decadent. They're resistant to anything non-decadent because for the same reason that people resist exercise and, and nutritious food because there's a there's a barrier to entry. So therefore, in order for those things to be um, adopted, it has to be fashioned in the right way that fits the needs of those people. That's kind of what we were looking at with Steve Jobs, right? He saw what people 
didn't know that they wanted that they wanted and then paired that aspect with something already there. So my proposition, right, as someone who, again, this might be massive cope, so you could all let me know if I'm massively coping here. But my my proposition is to look into the future and what do I see? Um, I have firsthand experience with a massive decline in uh, education and literacy. The, the institutions are failing out terribly. I had in, uh, undergrad students that are functionally illiterate. I'm not exaggerating. It was like a quarter of every class that I ever taught. And I think that's going to grow. Um, and so we've, we've got this, what I'm going to see as mass illiteracy, mass poor education. That's kind of why we see, uh, let's say, lower levels of prose being more popular. That's kind of why we see perhaps more indulgent things being more popular because there's a, you know, when you it's difficult to read a thing, you just don't like it. Now, after, now, like Erwin pointed out, after someone eats a good meal, after they, they actually are able to experience the thing, they, they've, you know, really had a chance to, to taste it after, you know, they have been away from the indulgence for so long. They're like, oh, wait a minute, that actually makes me feel better. They kind of can't go back, right? So you, we can't go back to the era of flip phones, for instance, right? Can't do that. Like once you've had like something like the modern smartphone, um, there's a couple people who will because they want to get away from the uh, constant connection to the internet that the smartphone gives you. But fundamentally, you're not going to mass market that. That's going to be, you know, a particular tiny niche. So how do we hit the masses? How do we how do we get them to eat their vegetables, if you will? Well, um, I think in the same way that Steve Jobs did, this reminds me a bit of a paper that Jordan Peterson wrote that he references very, very, very sparsely. Um, it has some crazy title like something about primates, but it's essentially, I call it the peacemaker paper. And he makes an argument that the peacemaker runs between the loser and the victor, right? He's something between the two. And he is willing to go down to the the level of the loser and understand his position. Um, and he is as competent as the victor, but he is different from them in a, in a way that makes the victor want to emulate him, but then also makes the loser want to emulate him. And that really reminds me of Apple. I think Apple is a really good comparison because Apple really sold itself on its... Um, you know, interface and fashionability, right? Like that, you, you're right. They didn't reinvent the wheel necessarily, but they presented the thing in such a way that it um, convinced people to give it a shot, right? And to to go for it and to feel cool about doing it, right? Uh, this reminds me a bit of when it used to be uh, cool to be edgy. Uh, it hasn't really been in a while. Uh, but if we think of someone like my favorite philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, like a lot of the reason why people even still read his stuff today, because no one cared about his stuff when he was writing, was because he was a massive edgelord. And then it kind of became cool for a moment to say, hey, like, let's try and tackle this this intensive stuff. Well, why did I bring up education earlier? I, I suspect we're going to look into the future that we're going to have a mass disparity. And I think that the skills of people are going to be so huge, particularly with AI. We haven't talked about that at all because it hasn't really, really, really been relevant. But I do think that that is going to further destroy people's ability to to read and write because they're going to be able to cheat more. 
they're going to be able to escape having to learn this this stuff more and so we're going to have some people who are extremely literate relative to people who are very very illiterate and i think at that moment the advantage of being a human being who has a range of uh, or has a wider literary background um, the advantage is going to be massive and why do i think that because you know, you can go and watch YouTube videos about different philosophies, but like when you actually sit down and read it, or you actually sit down and dig into maybe your religious texts or your the founding documents of your nation's um, politics or anything like history, when you are the guy sitting down with the book, taking the extra effort to read and read and read, and when you're the guy who actually sits down and writes and processes your thoughts in writing, because there's no difference between writing and thinking, fundamentally, I think Peterson's right on that, you're going to become a higher quality of person. And I think not in the immediate, but in the future, when so many things are going to be automatic and automated, that essentially people won't be able to sell the garbage anymore because the robots will be making the garbage, right? Like, like you won't be able to be a fast food cook if machines can make the fast food and just pump it out, right? If basically it's 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 hypersaturated and essentially there for free. Um, so what what am I saying about that? I think, and you guys can let me know what you think, and we'll wrap it up with this, that we, I think in the future, it's going to be, <laughs> maybe as me coping, but it's going to be cool and edgy to push stuff up toward what we might say is a more gilded, a golden age of work. Um, I think that, Right now, it's probably, I think Matt's right that like if you just try and play the market now, you're going to lose. You're going to lose doing that. And I think most of the people who competed uh, tried to push for higher level content are also going to lose. But I think a few of the visionaries that are coming up are going to put out enough work and enough work of good quality that is both both interesting and fashionable and nourishing that when the moment comes where it's the right, it's the cool thing, it's the high status thing to be someone who has the time and the luxury and the effort to read, um, then all of a sudden, bam, that's going to come into the forefront. I, I think if that doesn't happen, actually the whole culture will fall down, but that's a different topic. So um, let's go around uh, Torin, then Erwin, and then Matt, if you want to throw in some uh, some thoughts either on that or just any closing thoughts that you have. Torin, go ahead. Um, for the most part, no, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I can't exactly predict how it's going to unfold 100%, but I mean, yeah, I think with the AI thing, that's all. Yeah, that is that does add, add a whole nother, you know, just layer of factors to it. You know, and yeah, I think that really is going to dumb things down, especially, um, you know, like the, I remember it's been a while since I even tried to use it, but I remember when I, I just asked it to, uh, you know, spitball some ideas for like, you know, tabletop related stuff to me. What it gave me was just some of the most like trite, just boring, you know, un, just, uh, bland stuff imaginable, you know, it, if that's what's going to be like producing the future of uh, just <laughs> entertainment for people, yeah, it does not look good at all. Um, I guess regarding like just the general issue, you know, just kind of like going back to just, you know, what we were talking about with the Iron Age and all that. 
Yeah, I mean, it is hard to say. I maybe I you you know people here could say I'm I'm more on the optimistic side about things, but I do think that there kind of just is this hunger there that maybe you know is a bit subconscious even. But you know, you you kind of like when you do look at just the state that entertainment is in with the corporations and all that, it's very obvious that something very crucial is missing there. You know, even a, amongst just the average normie consumer. You know. Maybe again, I'm just optimistic, but no, that's that's what I was going to end with. Lynn, any thoughts? Oh, sorry, (laughs) I was muted. Uh, So, uh, when we try to predict what's going to happen in the future, we just have to look at the very key factors. AI is going to be a big thing, even though people try to say, oh, no, AI is so terrible and evil. It's going to be a thing, just like how cars were, airplanes, you have to adapt or else you're going to die off in a Darwinian way. So right now, AI, at the very most, can only create what people are inputting into the little system. I don't even know what AI does. AI, (laughs) does AI, it can only do what you type in, right? Like, it can only do a concept that you put it for it can't go beyond that concept it's just uh, making for now stuff from what of. happened in the past <laughs> yeah so there's no real creativity it's all strict order but also in a very simple form it repeats itself and it tries to create a theme but doesn't really go outside of anything so the only way to go outside of the reach of ai is to be an actual artist you can't be a mimic artist you can't be a fake artist you can't even go towards entertainment because entertainment is created by ai now you have ai art that is created and people are like oh i'm entertained by this i'm entertained by that Uh, that's why i think that people are really blinded by the entertainment argument when they try to make it as their only argument because all they're saying is i am the ai now i'm gonna die off when ai is bigger so the 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 future is gonna have all these mimic people die off because they're trying to pretend they're the AI now. And they're depending on their labor and their efforts. Which, you know, it's going to be futile. Once, maybe like 10 years from now. And then the other factor is going to be where you guys are talking about education. Uh, so, when people are becoming more illiterate. It's not really like they're unable to read. It's that their reading comprehension is very simple. Reserved for communication with texting. And it becomes a bit more colloquial, and like they're using a lot of slangs. So the language becomes a bit more, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, n- it's not informal language. It becomes more uh, closer in groups. And this is almost another way of saying it's like genres of languages. Because when you talk about a fantasy story, you're trying to use fantasy stuff to tell your message. When you talk about sci-fi, you're trying to use science and technology to say your message. Uh, romance, you're trying to use a relationship between two people, or you know, now it's more. But you're trying to use a relationship between two sides to say your message. So in order for artists to counter that and make sure that they survive, they have to make a message that is understood by a group. It can be very simple. I feel like the future for uh, art It's going to be where novels are less of a thing, and it's going to be more of serials. It's going to be more short, and almost like a million short stories combined into a long narrative. 
Very similar to how the Bible is like a bunch of different short stories combined into a long narrative. And each person is going to be creating their own little Bible. But they're going to be doing it one step at a time rather than a one big chunk. And that's why a lot of indie artists right now, they're trying to make giant novels. That's already kind of dead. Like, you don't need to make a giant novel. You're just doing it because big corporations did that in the old days for printing purposes. Why do you need to have such a big, large story for such a meaningless message? And so I do see a lot of uh, positivity, but I see the negativity for the old ways. Even though we're still repeating our old way of just saying, I want to make a message, I want to make art. Uh, you don't have people using pencils anymore. I don't know why people are trying to defend, like, like their, their, their I don't know how you say it, like their, their attachment to traditional um, like labors. Instead of just saying, I want to stick to traditional messages does that make sense i think so but uh let's give matt his his chance before we need to wrap things up here uh matt final words sure if if i look into my non-existent crystal crystal ball um really i don't think that ai is of importance to someone who aspires to be that top 10 or top one percent uh, is it going to make an impact on the market? Yes. Uh, for the exact reasons that everybody mentioned, it's, it is very good at creating something that has already been created before in new, in different, not even new ways. So I don't think that if one is aspiring to become, you know, up there among the elite, it's even something to be considered. Is it a tool? Sure. How do we use that tool? It's something that I think Every, like each creator should kind of experiment with. But really, I can't help but to think about the soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, yes, there's a steady decline in uh, comprehension, literacy, however we want to, to frame it. But ultimately, the easiest way to create a market is to market yourself in something that somebody needs and really what i what i see is a strong de a strong demand at least in the male space for male related things so what does that mean for a writer especially if they're targeting say um male readers 18 to 45 the uh, nice broad brush there is that you're offering let's just say a lifestyle right so how many go on social media? How many pictures male for male oriented accounts that are of old philosopher, you know, marble etchings of, of old philosophers or uh, old Roman emperors or what have you, uh, kind of evoking the the image of old, uh, let's just say, greats. So that's kind of a lifestyle. The the desire to take in the wisdom of, of old and kind of build this masculine image. And that's kind of where I'm moving is, is creating something that is relatable, at least readable. I don't, I, I really try not to be purple. I try not to be uh, over the top with, with uh, let's just say esoteric words, but m my concepts are very deep and I expect a lot for my readers in the concepts. 
And that might be the way to do it. You build an image of masculinity, right? You, you'll, you sit down in the mornings and have your cup of coffee and read the Bible. That's a very, let's just say, cowboy thing to do. I've seen a lot of creators um, uh, kind of tout that's what they do in the mornings. So if reading, you know, the old words is something that is aesthetic, then really the idea is to build an aesthetic of masculinity. You know, I go chop wood and then I turn that, that wood into a book and I wrote these words. You know, here's my muscles. Boom. I wrote you a book. I know you're going to love it. Something like that. Uh, where it's it's something to identify with. That's That's my approach to things. Thank you very much, man. All right, guys. Thank you for... Uh, all joining me here today and if you've listened this far into the podcast thank you much thank you very much for joining us um let us know what you think in the comments right like um give us as much feedback as we can get because it's like a huge issue and it really does matter to us especially because we're all authors here trying to write into this writing space something that will survive this race against well i guess each other and ourselves and, and the movement of time and i don't even know what i'm saying anymore i can't even Rhyme. So before I turn to Dr. Seuss, uh, go down in the comments below. Check out the links to Matt's stuff, Irwin's stuff, and Torrens as well. Uh, check out my stuff over at wildowlit.com. I won't ramble on. Uh, and I'll just say thank you guys for listening. Like and share this wherever platform, well, whatever platforms you're listening. It really actually do. Uh, I usually don't tell people to do that, but this time I would like to get this message out or this conversation really as far as it'll go. I want to know. Uh, what the the right direction is. All right, I'll stop rambling now. Thank you guys, and we'll see you next time.